You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, go to simplify.us. No Simplify ETFs will be discussed in this episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, I've got my friend Ken Miller. Ken is a portfolio manager at Simplify. Um, Ken, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is fantastic to have you on. Yep. Thank you, Shri, for having me. Yep. Awesome. You know, Ken, let's kick it off by talking a bit about your background. You know, you studied applied mathematics for your undergrad. Um, and, you know, as time has gone on, you know, math has sort of become, you know, one of the more foundational um, sort of subjects when it comes to when it comes to working in finance, but sort of the shift towards quant, etc. So, you know, could you talk a bit about your background, you know, what drove you to finance and sort of, you know, your career, uh, your, your career and, you know, how you ended up at Simplify? Sure. Uh, well, uh, I came out of um, UC Berkeley in the uh, late 80s uh, as an applied math. And really the goal there was to be a computer science major. And I my first job was working in the aerospace industry with uh, Martin Marietta Manned Space Systems uh, is where we built the space shuttle external fuel tank, the large orange fuel tank that attaches to the space shuttle. And um, why is that important? It's just a very, you know, visible, tangible kind of product and, uh, you know, that came out of that, that generation, that era. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, that was a big field for many uh, people coming out in with engineering degrees, a software engineering degrees. And, you know, I worked there for three years. And as I saw the program kind of aerospace in general, that was right around the time that the Cold War was kind of wrapping up. Uh, I decided to make the shift into finance by pursuing an MBA. I, um, I uh, went to the University of Southern California, USC, uh, and uh, you know, figured that I would get into some type of technology type field, most likely like a consulting with one of the big six consulting firms. And while I was uh, at at school there, uh, one of my professors, you know, told me, "Hey, there's this bond firm down in Orange County named Pimco. You should, the guy down there is Bill Gross. Give him a call. You know, give Bill Gross a call." And I was like, "Oh, like like bonds, like like." And I started reading about bonds. I read Frank Fabozzi's book, and you know, uh, what really kind of excited me was uh, was mortgage-backed securities, particularly com- collateralized mortgage obligations, CMOs. And uh, that was kind of my uh, specialty as I kind of like my personal specialty, even though I wasn't trading those, I was able to get into a, a role at a, um, at a small bank uh, or division of a large bank, rather. Uh, LaSalle National Bank was a subsidiary of ABN AMRO, a large Dutch bank, which was uh, trading commercial mortgage-backed security. So that was how I made the leap into finance. I was there for about two years, and then uh, I was able to to, uh, to join PIMCO in the analytics group and work there for 
about three years. And then, of course, you know, for those who have been in the markets a long time, know what happened in 1999. Uh, that was the euro common currency introduction. And we didn't have a very good system. Uh, no one did, uh, whether PIMCO or anyone had a good system for trading foreign currency bonds and risk or for analyzing the risk, rather. And uh, they asked me to to integrate our analytics for the common currency, the common currency bonds into uh, into our trading desk, onto the trading desk. And that's how I became a trader. I started um, in early in 2000, roughly the year 2000. And uh you know, what's interesting is we were trading all of the non-dollar uh, interest rates as well as FX. And, you know, I remember there being these these countries that were very illiquid at the time and Greece, Italy, you know, those kinds of, of sovereign debt that you thought, oh, wow, there's nice spreads here. It's pretty tight. It's like 25 over buns, you know. And then of course, in 2003 or 11, rather, and, and then on into 2013, those spreads blew out to the to the, you know, from the standpoint of that. You know, Greece wound up being basically defaulting, um, having to have private sector, you know, write downs. So I'm kind of encapsulated a lot of time there. But, but you know, during my span of time at PIMCO from uh, 2000 to 2018, and, and I, I, like I said, I started at PIMCO in 96. Uh, I was on the trading desk for 18 years, uh, trading a variety of things, uh, but spent a lot of time trading uh, non-dollar foreign exchange, foreign exchange derivatives, and then over to equity derivatives at the tail end of my career. And that's what launched me into uh, two spinoffs. And I say spinoffs, I mean um, partners from uh, PIMCO who had left to found their own investment managers firms. This, the, the one prior to Simplify was Longtail Alpha, which uh, was founded by Veneer uh, Bonsali, who um, I worked with that I uh, had uh, really the, the privilege of working with at PIMCO and uh, we, I was there for a while and um, we, I think we had a good, good approach. It, it, uh, it didn't take off initially like I had hoped and um, uh, you know, Simplify came to me and, uh, and offered me a, a role and that's how I end up here. So that's, that's pretty much the synopsis of my career. Anything that sounds, uh, interesting or <laughs> no it all sounds super interesting and you know veneer is sort of super respected just within um the tail risk you know he sort of wrote the seminal book tail risk hedging um so he's you know that is amazing and you know when it comes to so you know when it comes to your career at pimco you know were you still within mortgage bonds and you know mortgage securities um during the housing boom and you know sort of the 2008 financial crisis or had you sort of made your shift to um, the sovereign bonds and, you know, non-dollar effects, et cetera, you know, by then. Well, it's interesting, you know, that even though I had had that interest in, in mortgage-backed securities, the more, the MBS desk was very well staffed at PIMCO during the housing crisis. The current uh, CIO at PIMCO, uh, Dan Iveson, was, you know, uh, instrumental in navigating PIMCO through that period. Uh, at that time, I was I was focused on uh, on non-dollar debt. So you know, even though I had an interest in in MBS, like I, I was not actively involved at Pimco in that market. Um, there were uh, you know situations where we held 
some non-agency debt in some of our global portfolios where we would interact with the MBS desk to say, you know, wow, this was now this is trading 70 cents on the dollar, 60 cents on the dollar. Uh, should we should we buy this? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and um, that was in coordination, obviously, with some of the specialists over there. But that was the only interaction that I had during the crisis. I mean, our my role during the crisis was to navigate a lot of the uh, the secondary mark-to-market issues that related from running books, running, uh, you know, a term that we hear a lot here at Simplify is, uh, is stacking returns, uh, which we used to call it portable alpha. And with portable alpha, one of the, the cornerstones of portable alpha at PIMCO was to take the total return type of stream of funds take that small amount, when I say small amount of alpha, 150 to 200 basis points a year of alpha is, is great. And that was PIMCO was consistently generating and convert that to, you know, foreign currency equivalents. So uh, we have an investor in Australian dollar who wants to buy, uh, you know, the global aggregate and bonds and, and but get it hedged into Aussie dollar. So the, the, during the financial crisis, there was, as you can imagine, when currencies uh, sold off dramatically, and it was a you know a flight to the U.S. dollar. These hedges into the base currency, Australian dollar, the euro, uh, obviously experienced some some substantial losses. And and I was involved in that you know collateralization process, the the mark to market uh, uh, shifting of risk around uh, inside of those portfolios during the crisis. So since Uh you asked me specifically about what did I do during the 2008 crisis, that was a big part of what I did. Not to mention, you know, we, we, I traded interest rate derivatives. We had a lot of counterparty risk with, with, with uh, Lehman and others. And, and that was a, a lot to navigate as well. So that was how that crisis touched me. Uh huh. And you know, do you have any sort of war stories from your time at Pimpco? Um, especially considering that you know you worked very closely with Bill Gross, and you know Bill Gross is sort of a, a hero or a legend in the fixed income and bonds world. Yeah, very much. I I see the Canadian flag behind you, and uh, <laughs> I will say that you know, as as I mentioned, I was a non-dollar specialist, and you know, in conjunction with others, obviously, uh, that were that were very deeply involved in the Canadian bond market. I I sat, um, because I traded a lot of liquid products, um, liquid uh, currencies, obviously extremely liquid, uh, foreign um, interest rate futures, most notably, you know, the Bunds, Bobbles, which is the five-year Germany, uh, the front end of, uh, of Euro, which uh, Europe, which is the, you know, Euribor, uh, short sterling, all of those types of, uh, which is the equivalent of Euro dollars. You know, I sat in close proximity to, to, uh, to the CIOs, to Bill and uh, Mohammed, both of which were, were really a joy and just a, a daily challenge, which was fun to work with. And, you know, not too many, I wouldn't call them war stories. I mean, you felt like you were in a trench with, you know, with a lot of risk flying over your head and a lot of uh, uh, quick questions. And especially with all of the, uh, the, what happened during those those crisis periods. But, you know, we would get orders that were would be to transact in 
in the Canadian bond market, for example, into instruments that were not necessarily the most liquid, but you know, we would utilize different ways of 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 getting things done. Uh, we had a nice team that was able to to help us do that, to participate in auctions. And I remember my role being very much a little bit of like a quarterback across, you know, different desks. Like, well, I've got to call the head of the guilt desk over in the UK. We want to buy something in this auction. Bill wants to buy something in this auction. Or, uh, you know, we uh, we want to buy some provincials in Canada. We want to participate in the, you know, the British Columbia, you know, auction or, you know, there's a, there's a, those types of things. So um, those were some big ones. We, we were very big. One of the things that, um, you know, PIMCO was very good at doing was spotting where there was a, um, you know, a structural uh, type of, flow in the market that might persist and if you could get a trade which hit on um three or four cylinders instead of just one uh you know that was very attractive i think one of the best uh one of the, the two trades that i you know feel the most um you know joy or or just proud of in my time there were which were very very big deep liquid trades were in foreign exchange derivatives we i think uh euro usd uh implied volatility uh reached you know like uh like below a five percent implied volatility in 2007 and you know and this is this is you know many different individuals on the desk i, I want to 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 say something about um a gentleman who was really instrumental in 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 mentoring me, and that is, is Sudi Mariapa, who is also still at PIMCO, is very, uh, had been through, you know, ex long term capital, had been through some very tough times in the markets. And, you know, we spot trades, we, I, I kind of went through a lot of the implementation details. You brought up earliest, earlier, uh, Shri, about, you know, cheapest implementation that's a huge thing about what we figured out and what we did is it do you want to do it in spot do you want to have to delta hedge do you want to do it in a forward vol agreement uh those types of uh of structures we spent a lot of time analyzing and a lot of time writing it and translating it down into a simple presentable format for bill and muhammad and others and uh that that was my role and not only that trading it right executing it but that that uh, being long volatility in the FX market, if you look on a chart at what the one year, uh, three month and one year implied vol did, it exploded after that in euro. Uh, also, the other big trade we did, which was uh, to sell yen calls. Uh, there was a big interest rate differential between US dollars and yen. You had the interest rate differential in your favor. You had the volatility roll down in your favor. You had the basis roll down, which you've talked about, the, the cross-currency basis. It worked in your favor. And when you have three to four cylinders working in your favor, and this is, I'm kind of touching on what you asked at the beginning, that's the types of trades you want to look for is, you know, and it has to be a very liquid trade that you can uh, not only unwind, but another term you heard of a lot at PIMCO was self-liquidation. Uh, 
you know, trades that self-liquidate. You don't have to, uh, you know, trade out of it. Are you going to pay a huge bid offer on the way out of these trades? And that's, um, that's an important attribute. So I think I covered a lot right there, and, and I'm happy to, to, to address any more questions that you might have relating to that. But that's, in a synopsis, I think the two big trades that, that I remember being part of that I felt, you know, I was, I was intimately connected with uh, and managing and, and navigating for, for the CIOs and for the firm. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, that idea of having three or four different cylinders or, you know, different sort of thesis points or different things working in your favor. Um, I think, I think, you know, that's very cool. And it's a super cool framework to think about. Um, you know, just on the point of euro and yen, I think we saw a sort of similar opportunity in uh, sort of 2021, where we saw you a dollar yen vol, um, implied vol and um, euro, euro USD implied vol, if I remember correctly, um, both were again, not very close to their all time lows. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it sort of presented a similar opportunity, at least in hindsight, you know, we had the Russia Ukraine war, which sent Euro, which sent vol um, on Euro through the rouge, you know, we've seen some crazy action with uh, dollar yen um, throughout this year. So, so just overall, you know, it's, it, it, it seems to, so just overall, and I thought that was very interesting to notice. Definitely. It's, uh, it gives you some, some latitude if, your view if things don't work out you want to have as many things working in your favor in a trade right um and they're hard to find i mean it has to be something that i mean i think the other thing that i think about the japanese yen um you know situation in 2012 if you remember that was when uh prime minister abe came in and abenomics and that was one of the arrows was to keep the currency or to weaken the currency um, and, um, you know, uh, sadly, we, we lost prime, uh, PM Abe, but, um, uh, you know, that, that's, that's an important thing to think about when you do put on trades is uh, what's, what's working in my favor, what's liquid, how can I get out of this, how much will it cost me to get out of it? Mm -hmm. Yep. And no, just on that note, um, you know, I'm, I'm also very curious. So, you know, when it comes to thinking about hedges and sort of cheap ways to hedge or cheap optionality, cheap volatility, and what is sort of your framework for sort of finding those kind of opportunities? You know, where do you look and you know, how do you assess whether a hedge or an options position is, is cheap enough to put on or sort of expensive enough to sell? You know, you gave the example of selling yen calls. So, you know, just both ways. Yeah, I mean, you you have to uh, determine uh, what you want to be in the vol markets. Like, do you want to be a provider of volatility? Do you want to be a a buyer? I mean, the general kind of rule of thumb is that uh, sellers of volatility, sellers of VIX, you know, VIX futures, there is, you know, you want to be a, a provider. You want to be a seller. I think that. Um, buyers of options generally uh, come up short. Uh, you know, um, I think the, the you could many people characterize it in different ways. You know, the street is working against you, time is working against you. Um, you know, momentum is working against you. Uh, there are things that you know you always we, we used to say at Pimco, you know, we want to be providers of volatility. We have the ability to to sell vol, to sell strangles on rates. We feel that rates are going to be in this range. 
uh, or currencies will be in this range or whatever. So when you decide that you are going to be a buyer of volatility, you have to so, – so you're keeping in mind that that's going against the the grain a little bit. You have to have a lot of things working in your favor, and that you know that could be – an extremely strong conviction about the direct about what the what uh, the markets will do, whatever it is you're buying options on, um, and uh, you know a, a horizon where you can handle the uh, the decay, uh, depending on in, in an option. So that's I'm talking about if you want to be a purchaser. I mean, if you want to be a seller, you know that that's you're exposed then to tail risk in a way, right? You're um, you have to be um, to understand uh, at what point. I think I think the the an important thing to keep in mind is you have to have a, a level at which you will do this. Yeah, ex ante. You have you have to say, you know, I like the VIX. You know, or let's say the uh, October VIX or November VIX. I like it at twenty nine sixty seven. If it gets to thirty. I'm going to sell it. I'm talking about the VIX futures. I, right. I'm just picking that as an example. So you have to, in your mind, go in, and, and, and that's the right way to trade. You don't want to, to when, the, when it gets to 30, you don't want to be thinking, oh, well, maybe it'll go to 32, you know, and I'm going to sell it there. You, ha it's, you, you have to have it in your mind, I'm a seller at 30, I'm a buyer at 25. I, and, that's, and that's, you have to look at E-minis that way. You have to look at currencies that way. Uh, go in with the level in mind. Don't, you know, and there's all types of strategies that relate to, well, the momentum in this particular asset is here and I'm going to buy it because, you know, but but just know beforehand where, what level you're going to get in and where, what level you're going to get out as well. Mm -hmm. So you know, target. Yep. And, you know, going back to the point you were making earlier, so I know you're saying that generally speaking, you should have, uh, you know, generally speaking, you know, being long optionality tends to be hard. You know, you have time working against you and the street is working against you, et cetera. I mean, I'm generally curious. I know over time, um, have you noticed that um, that the profile of being short gamma or just general or just in general short options has changed? Because, you know, for example, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that I don't know if people listening to the podcast might be aware of. But, you know, one of the things that happened in the middle um, of the 2010s was there used to be this website called optionsellers.com, which was essentially a hedge fund um, focused around selling options and it, it, it selling, un selling uncovered options. And essentially the, uh, essentially the fund blew up because, um, you know, it's sort of, the, the, I think there's sort of a saying, you know, it's not Delta that kills you, it's the gamma. And, you know, do, do you think the profile of, being short gamma and being short options has changed, has changed over time. Uh, well, I think that's absolutely absolutely true. I was looking at a you know, good chart today that showed how what percentage of um, of option expiries in the S and P uh, options index options is you know inside of twenty four hours at maturity, and it's 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 gone up tremendously. I think it's in like a forty percent range. You know, so wow. so so that answers your question. Like, how has the gamma profile changed? Yes, because the shorter the options, obviously, the the larger the gamma component is to to the option. And you know, I mean, with with this type of I mean, today felt like a day where 
you had some coordination between you know uh, authorities, uh, market participants, market commentators uh, about you know hey maybe this. It, it, my point is that it's very hard to predict over one day what is going to if you can make money over one day like we like who knows what will happen tomorrow and or over the weekend in ukraine who knows what will happen you know over the weekend in one of the political races or you know um there, there there's so many things that can happen in one day that override any you know legitimate view that fundamental view right that might actually right. pervade so i think that it's very hard to make money over a short period of time in options now because so much of the market is playing there and there are just too many things that can happen in a 24 to 48 hour period, um, especially with the instability that I think we see geopolitically right now. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, you know, one of the one of the things that Mike Green has talked about um, over the last week is how we've sort of seen um, we, we've sort of seen the exact shift you've uh, you've described. So, you know, people are trading um, very short dated options, you know, with four days to experience you know, and less. Um, and, you know, sort of sort of that is sort of um, a sign of low conviction trading because it's very hard to tell, you know, what's going to happen in markets, say, over the next couple of weeks or say over the next three months or six months, et cetera, you know, with so many with so much uncertainty. And, you know, I think I think that's sort of an interesting phenomenon to observe. Absolutely. That is is true that, you know, that's the the way of playing, you know, being being long. Uh, an option is a way of playing. I just don't know what's going to happen, but I, I know that I don't want to commit. You know, one of, one of the beauties of of option trading is is uh, you know risk substitution. Um, calls are used as a substitution of an outright position, a fully capitalized position in in stocks, right? Because I mean, most most investors, right, are you know like. You know, personally, you think, well, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to I'm going to buy Spy or I'm going to buy Nasdaq or I'm going to buy Apple or Tesla. You know, you you're you're fully committing capital. You may you may do it in options, but in 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 lieu of actually, if you are an investor whose benchmark is the Fang stocks or or uh, the S and P 500, you know, you you have to determine whether or not you're going to if if options are worth the the commitment of risk to match your benchmark if you get a massive rally. And a lot of times without that conviction, the option on the, on the S and P is the only way you can do it. So I think that's why you're seeing that right now is um, there is, I, I would agree with Mike about the lack of conviction. Yep, absolutely. And you know, one of the other things is um, so Hari Krishnan wrote a book called the second leg down and you know, he's a, He's a vol trader and uh, and uh, I think he's a portfolio manager, CIO or something at SCT um, Capital Management or right? SCT Trading Strategy. I, I, I think the the name of the firm is SCT, and I don't I don't remember the I don't remember the suffix to that name. But he wrote a book called The Second Leg Down, where he sort of talked about um, strategies on how you can still you you can profit or you can hedge after the market starts to move down. And you know what what he sort of described is um, what he sort of described as sort of a very a very interesting strategy where you know you buy an OTM option that's less than twenty five delta, um, 
put put options uh, with less than four days to expiry. And, you know, it seems like, you know, once is sort of the environment and, you know, we sort of started to see, um, you know, simplify um, incorporate this sort of an approach to a lot of our products. So, you know, it sort of seems interesting. You know, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on how you would go about um, hedging in a market or thinking about hedging in a market that's already moved lower? Well, the thing, one of the things we used to do is, uh, is do a, you know, a stress type of pa uh, a table or panel that told you, you know, um, given the, you know, the rally that we've seen, let's say today's rally from 3640 to 3770 in the S&P. So that's going up, right? We're, I know you were talking down, but, you know, what, what other instruments that are highly correlated to a rallying stock market have not yet been, you know, it's not been reflected. I mean, I look out here, you know, obviously the dollar weakened today so that makes sense so maybe there's not so much opportunity there spreads tightened in 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 uh, investment grade and high yield uh, bonds you know um currency volatility you know didn't really move that much um i mean that's you know could be a sell there um if you think i mean that that that, uh, that i'd have to think about a lot though because you got the bog or sorry the moth who was active today, right? In dollar yen. So, so you have to analyze and say, well, what, what are trades that to, to, to build on what uh, Mr. Krishnan said is, you know, what is the indirect, we used to call those indirect hedges, like an indirect correlated hedge, like it, something's already moved. What was the beta of high yield spreads or FX volatility or uh, non-agency mortgage-backed security spreads, you know, or um, the cross-currency basis, uh, you know, that, that one takes a lot longer to actually play out, obviously. But those are things that you want to look for when you have a big shock or after you've had a big drawdown, like you were talking in the markets, you say, well, what hasn't yet moved? Wow, FX volatility may be low, right? I, I could have been buying, you know, yen calls, you know, not necessarily cheaply, uh, relative to his to long-term history, but those are things that we could have. Um, th those would be the second leg down trades that I would think about. And and I'm not I'm not highlighting anything in particular right now. I'm not so if you're asking me for specific recommendations, I'm not going to be able to make them without doing a a thorough analysis. I think you need to have a uh, the ability to look closely. Mm -hmm. Yep. A hundred percent. And, you know, just on, you know, just moving away from hedging, but still on the topic of options. Now, what are the ideas behind options and this idea of convexity is that, you know, you can, uh, you know, you can bet $2 in order to make $3. So, you can know, you can risk $5 in order to make $10. Uh, you know, from your experience and your expertise within just the options world, you know, how do you think about structuring options positions that are the most optimal um, in terms of the risk reward scenario? Um, as it, as it, as it relates to your thesis and time horizon, you know, how do you think about you know going? Because for example, you know, if you're if you want to be long something, or you know, let's say you know you believe that just hypothetically the S and P five hundred is going to go up over say the next month, so that's sort of your thesis. You know, your time horizon is one month. But there's just so many different ways to play. You know, for example, you know if vol is high or you think you know puts are super expensive, you know you can make some money by selling puts. Or you know on the other hand. You could outright buy calls, or you know, you could buy a call spread, etc. Or you know, you could think about expressing it in a related market, as you were just saying. So you know, how do you go about you know hunting for what the best expression 
um, of a thesis is, um, you know, keeping time horizon in mind, of course, um, uh, within the options world. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, of analyzing where things sit, uh, where particular structures sit on, uh, you know, on, a, on some type of normalized basis uh, to say, uh, you know, I think the market's going to go up here. And I know that and and maybe a lot of people, market participants think that too. And, you know, one of the big dynamics in the market that you see right now is the the collapse or, narrow, or extreme narrowing. I won't say collapse, extreme narrowing in the call versus put skew where call volatility imply what you pay for calls is, you know, roughly, you know, is, is extremely low relative to where puts are for that same degree of out of the moneyness. So, you know, that those are things that I like to analyze to say, you know, does that does that um, type of condition warrant buying, you know, uh, something that uh, like a bullish trade, because you said, I think the market's going to go up a bullish trade that takes advantage of that of that condition. So maybe a call spread. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, uh what you say? You said buying, um, you could buy a call right. or you could sell a put rather, right? Like, yeah, I mean, put, put volatility is pretty elevated, right? I mean, just as long as you can protect yourself in, you know, the event of, you know, a bad inflation report, right. That might come out. So, um, but I, I like looking at structures. I like looking at, you know, risk reversals, um, uh, callers, um, you know, um, you know, iron condors type of like, which are maybe like a derivation off of a straddle or a strangle that give you to say, I, I'm I'm confident that, you know, this particular structure is at a two standard or two or three standard deviation level of cheapness historically. And for that reason, I, I've, you know, I think that when you get to this level of pricing, that the an analysis shows you that the the trailing 30 to 60 days sees you know positive returns uh 70% of the time so this is this is one thing that is really important i think is to say there is no certainty right it's all about probability you have to understand what is the probability that my view will take will take place if but the probability if i assume that Historically, the conditions that prevailed, you know, at this point today, relative to what it did in 2016 or 2018, you know, in 80% of the uh, scenarios where this situation was was you know pre prevalent in the market, the market's going to rally 80% of the time. That's that's all oh. you can do. You can't say you know with certainty. You can just say I. An analysis shows me that when you get to this point. You know, 80% of the time you have a, a, so that gives you, that tells you, uh, well, you know, 80% is a pretty good coin flip for me. I mean, you know, if it's, if it's 52%, well, maybe not. Right. I think that's an important thing to, and, and you know, those types of probability and then evaluating everything else, Sri, like saying there's an 80% probability that stocks will be up. There's a 75% probability that Tesla will be up. There's a 60% probability that, you know, municipal bond spreads will will tighten, you know, all of these things. And you say, well, what's the best trade out there? How much risk am I willing to commit to it? How much loss am I willing to take on it if I'm wrong in the 20 percent, you know, scenario that it doesn't 
transpire. Mm-hmm. 100%. And, you know, I think that's sort of the key, right? So you want to sort of work, uh, work in a way where, you know, even if you're wrong, you don't, you, you don't lose much, but then, you know, when you're right, you know, you're, you're able to make, uh, you know, you're able to make multiples or at least some, or at least, you know, a positively convex um, outcome. And, you know, I think, you know, I think on that note, you know, one of the, one of the key things that's interesting to think about is, so for example, I mean, I was reading a report, I think the uh, last inflation number was last week. Um, and so, you know, the day before the inflation number, you know, I was reading a report from one of the big banks, if I remember correctly, on how, um, even if there was a beat to the inflation number, you know, a lot of that or, or a lot of the stagflation um, was sort of already priced into stuff like bonds and, um, and gold, etc. And so, you know, even if you were to see, even if you were to see a, a beat, you know, you're not going to see, uh, you're not really going to see it, see it move much. But, you know, if you were going to see a miss, you know, considering what's priced in, you know, those expectations are going to change. And, you know, you're sort of going to see the converse happen where you say, you know, yields would decline, you know, gold would decline, etc. So, you know, when, you, when it comes to figuring out what is priced in, um, uh, what is priced in already into markets, you know, how do you go about, um, how do you go about thinking and sort of finding that? Uh, what you want to do is, uh, view things in, in a table, uh, with, you know, a, a many assets over many different horizons, uh, saying that, uh, positioning is a, is a big thing, which you mentioned crowded trades, extremely important to know what are crowded trades, what are individuals betting on a high, a higher, a CPI beat versus a miss, like mm -hmm. you said, those are uh, big uh, pieces of information you need to have in your tool of analysis to say, I can tell that, you know, if we don't get a 9% inflation number, that the market's going to rally big, even though that's maybe above expectations. So, Positioning is a very, very big thing. Uh, positioning in funds, positioning it. What, what, what really is is so interesting to me is my entire career that I that I kind of summarized for you earlier has been in finding those second order, third order assets relationships. Like I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, I mean everybody's watching inflation, everybody's trading stocks, e minis, right? That it's impossible for me to say that that's not I've never had that role in my in my career. Like I've never been the person to say, hey Ken, if if CPI beats, what do you think SP will do? I mean, I don't think like that. I, I think what do I think dollar yen's gonna do? What do I think dollar yen ball is gonna do? What do I think buns are gonna do? What do I think uh you know the instruments that I trade, Canadian provincials, you right. know, what's gonna happen there? What's the BOC gonna do? So right you're you're going to like patient zero when you talk about the e-minis right and cpi and this is these are things that there's just too many variables for and that's the fun thing that that is the root of all of it right so you if you have the right call there you can kind of predict but that touches back to about your kind of secondary second leg down uh type of analysis to say yeah, everyone's going to trade E-minis and, and, and TY for you, 10-year futures on a, on a CPI uh, surprise. But what have they not traded? What's missing? What's, you know, what else is out there? And that's, that's what 
what my role has always been uh, historically, you know, before my role at, at, uh, at Simplify. So uh, it's hard. What you're, what you're saying to do is very hard to, how do you structure? How do you um, know? But, you know, the more you look at it, uh, and, and, you know, the, the other thing that is very important to, and I know you've heard this before, but it's what is not captured in the information. No one knew about, you know, only a few people knew about how poor the underwriting standards were in 2007 and why a real estate market crashed, right? Or, uh -huh. you know, or what the degree of leverage was at, you know, at, uh, at Lehman, you know, these, these kinds of things that who, who is, there, there are things that is, what is, or, or like, would the LIBOR OIS spread blow out? You know, th these are things that they're kind of, well, it's the, the risk that you don't see that you need to be able to anticipate so I'd say try to think of things that you're not able to – that have not yet surfaced that might surface. And that that's the, the, the difficult part, I think. Everybody knows now to look at you know, positioning and, and how many options are trading inside of a day and you know, flows, those types of things. But it's what, what are we not looking at? Like, like would there be a pandemic? I mean that was, who could call that one, right? But I'm just saying there are, there are things that are unforeseen. Yep. Yep. 100%. And, you know, just on that note, you know, what do you, what, you know, what are you seeing in, you know, these crazy markets today? So um, especially within the option space in terms of positioning, um, skew, et cetera, anything else that you watch and, you know, just overall, um, you know, you said that, you know, LIBOR OIS, TED spread, you know, everyone watches that, you know, what is something that, you watch that is usually you know, not watched, you know, people typically don't pay attention to. It's the Ken secret sauce. <laughs> no, that's tough. I mean, I uh, think I've kind of touched on it a little bit. I think that the, uh, the types of things we talked about with uh, low conviction, maybe buying of call options because that's a call substitution instead of being long the market, it's a cheap way, a levered way to get long the market. You know, I think those are overpriced. I think the uh, sales being willing to sell the upside off overwriting is, you know, is the term that's called is, is attractive right now. I mean, a lot of people think that that's not, there's nothing secret about that. You know, I, that could be completely wrong. The market is, has been beaten down dramatically that, that might be the right trade to be long calls. I, but I think that that's probably a little overpriced right now. The market's certainly reflecting the expensiveness of calls. I think there are, I think what you, you see is um, many retail investors are shocked about, and this is maybe not necessarily options related, but retail investors are shocked about how, geez, my, I was in bonds because I thought stocks would do, I kind of figured stocks would do badly and I've been nervous since COVID. So I'm in bonds. Well, wow. Now you're, now you're sitting on big, on the same size losses. I think Bill Gross wrote, just wrote an article about it, about, you know, that total return funds and bonds are charging 50 basis points, but delivering terribly negative returns in line with the bond indexes. So I mean, my point is that, these are things that investors are, investors may panic on the back of that. Investors may not be aware of other things out there that they can 
take advantage of. I think I think Simplify offers a nice suite of of products that you know, given a view, enable you to uh, to utilize options in a very liquid, transparent platform to speculate, you know, on what you think the market's direction be up or down. Yep. 100%. And, you know, I think that's what's super cool about Simplify the way um, we're able, I mean, obviously we can't mention tickers on, on the podcast, but, you know, one of the cool things is how we, we use options um, and we sort of give it in a sort of a retail, a retail ETF rapid that, you know, anyone can, um, anyone can go ahead and use. So I think, you know, that's, that's what's super cool. That's one of the very cool Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. You know, you know, with that, Ken, you know, one more thing that's the, the, that is interesting is, you know, when it comes to the positioning of, um, of equities, you know, one of the things that I've continually read is on how, you know, the market in terms of positioning has been incredibly, incredibly bearish. And just as a, just as a function of that, the, the chances of something like a short squeeze happening on any sort of good news, say, you know, good inflation print, et cetera, that may, that, that may, um, good as in a miss on inflation, you know, which may, uh, or, you know, the Fed being dovish, et cetera, you know, that could, that could really set off some sort of a short squeeze. And I think that's one of the structural risks that that's very interesting to pay attention to in the market right now. Um, where, where, uh, where positioning is heavily lopsided on the short side. We definitely agree with that. I think many out there are waiting for relief from this, uh, the it could be a variety of things. I mean, we've got an extremely heavy calendar coming up in the next month with with midterm elections, and uh, you know what's going to happen. Like we talked about Europe, we've got the winter coming up in Europe, and and uh, sabotage on pipelines and war, and so you know if any of that eases, uh, then I think you could see some you know people that have been waiting to to buy, uh, you know, could, could quickly, uh, flood back in. So, uh, you know, that's, that's why you've seen, you've seen people buying calls, right? It's, they know that this could happen, it, but, uh, obviously the, 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 the overriding risk has been to the downside, uh -huh. you know, because of inflation, but, um, but, uh, positioning is, is quite bearish, um, and uh, I don't think, however, though, that I think that the the my sense is that the retail selling is is pretty much done. I mean, I, that that's in disagreement with many, I think, especially here. I think we, we might be waiting. And, and certainly, you know, if something disastrous happens in Europe or or, or anywhere, you know, then, then obviously you're going to want to sell. Like, I mean, personally, I've, I have a longer term perspective. I'm holding on to my equity positions. I'm holding on to my, to my bond positions in my personal funds, you know? Um, but uh, th that, that could change, that calculus could change very quickly. If uh, someone else gets, you know, if, if this war widens, for example, or if uh -huh. we have a re resurgence of COVID or, uh, some strange result in the midterm elections that, you know, really amplify a fiscal issue that we might have or, or a monetary issue. Yep. 100%. You know, and on that note, Ken, you know, it was fantastic having you on the podcast and I thank you so much for being on and 
know, being generous with your time and sharing, you know, your thoughts on the options world, you know, how you structure trades, as well as sort of your lessons from, you know, your years at PIMCO, um, long chain, a long tail alpha and simplify. So, you know, it was awesome. It was awesome getting the opportunity to interview you. Thank you so much. Shri, thank you. This was fun. And uh, I really appreciate your, your willingness to talk to me. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.